The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Paul has been writing in this letter and in this book and simply saying over and over and over again that humanity is a sinful breed. It is at its core lost, and that is all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God, chapter 3, verse 20. They've dishonored Him in their lives, chapter 1, 21. They deserve, therefore, uh, the wrath of God, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that they are only made right with God, that is, that we are justified on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us in His life, death, and resurrection. Paul, uh, he answers this greatest of human problems, the problem of how then does humanity which is broken, humanity which is at enmity with God, humanity which has no hope in and of itself, how is it that humanity uh, is saved? How is it that we become uh, justified? And he is saying over and over, and the Lord is saying to us that God has provided for us a righteousness in His Son which is given to us, uh, that it is imputed to us, that it is, it is infused, if you would, into us. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer and priest, uh, said that it was an alien righteousness foreign to us that we in and of ourselves could not uh, ever concoct, and it was given to us and we received it by faith alone and by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so we come and we recognize this and we see uh, this incredible statement that Paul makes. He uses, he uses financial language when he says the righteousness of Christ was credited to your account. Uh, that now your account, which was uh, full of all of the bad, full of uh, misappropriation and full of all of these things, has now been totally and fully paid for in Christ, the debt that you owed has been paid, and His righteousness has been credited to your account. And that God the Father, the ultimate judge, the King of the universe, the one who is seated on the throne, the only one in all of the world, in all of history, whose opinion truly matters uh, in your life, He looks at you, and in Christ Jesus, He declares this about you if you believe the gospel. You are righteous, perfect, without sin, without blemish. There is no more wrath. There is no more uh, of His righteous indignation that is aimed at you, but it is fully absorbed and fully taken on in Christ and that you are now His. That's pretty good news, huh? We could just literally stop there each week and start again uh, of saying, this is what you need to know because I promise you this. You either forgot it outright this week Or you failed to appropriate that truth as you went day to day and moment by moment. Because it would radically transform how you live your life. How I live my life. How we live our life together. If we actually believed what we say that we believed. That if I believed this morning that I stand before God absolutely perfect. And that I am good with Him. It would change how I come in front of you. It would change how I act. It would change uh, my desires. It would change me from the inside out because of the incredible work of God in Christ Jesus. 
And so we have to then ask the question, what's wrong with us? If that's the truth, and that's what we believe, and what we as Christians say that we believe, and some of you may be uh, here, maybe tipping your toes back into church, maybe you come from different traditions which may teach something different, and that you've worked and you've worked and you've worked, and you find, as Luther did early in his life, I obeyed God and I hated him as a slave master, as one who was never satisfied with my work. And you've come and you've tried to be good, and you find that you fail all the time. And so you've stayed away from the church because all it did was preach condemnation to your already condemned soul. Or you find yourself so pitched in the battle that you're worn out, and you wonder if there's any hope of deliverance in the end of the day. I want you to hear this. Christ has won. And that you are his based on him and not you. It is not in the valor of your attempt. It is not in the credibility of even your repentance. But it is fully and undeniably within his completed work on the cross on your behalf. Isn't that good news? And if we believe that, why do we still struggle? Why do we still struggle? One of the things I love about the scriptures is it is the very word of God. It is God-breathed. It is from him. It is his word. We don't get to choose which pieces of this are his word. It is his fully and completely, 66 books of the canon given to us, and we have to submit ourselves to it, to learn from it, to digest it, to come under its authority. And it is a spiritual and divine book, sacred, but it's also incredibly human. And I love that Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul whom I imagine if you bumped into him, you would go, there's an incredibly righteous man. There's a man who gets it. There's a man who, if anybody looks an awful lot like his Savior Christ, it's Paul. And as Paul is following his Savior, I'm going to follow Paul along the way, and I want to be an awful lot like him. And Paul would look back and say, You're right, I may look like Christ, I do get it at some level, but let me tell you something, I wrestle with my own heart. Even in my older age, I wrestle with my heart. Oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and I'm in the midst of this internal conflict that happens within my heart. And he wrote it down, because guess what he knows about you and me? We wrestle with these things. We too wrestle. Anybody this week do something you were like, ooh, yuck, didn't really want to do that? Think something you shouldn't have thought? Yeah. Or you passed by something that you could or should have done and you decided, I'm not going to do that. We find ourselves in that tension constantly. So what's the hope? What's going on? Well, the passage of Scripture that we've heard read and that we're going to look at together today talks about this battle within us. And I'm presenting it to you as an understanding that this is the battle of a Christian heart, a converted heart. There are others within the church who are brilliant men and women who would hold a different position that maybe this was Paul before his conversion or that this was a different segment of people who may have heard of the gospel, been convicted by it, but hadn't yet been born again and they were wrestling in these things. But my understanding and my presentation today comes on the basis that this is the battle of the Christian heart. This is the battle that every Christian wages at some level uh, within our lives. 
and in preparation for this battle, this battle within, the battle, uh, if you would, of good and evil, the battle of the flesh and the spirit, I was encouraged uh, to go back and to reread uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's great work, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And you may have seen the play, or you may have seen a movie, or something about it, but most likely you haven't read the, I believe, 87 pages of its original work. And it's fascinating, because Stevenson is, is wrestling with humanity. He, he's wrestling with the human heart. And, and he's wrestling with a Dr. Jekyll, who was good, and thought that somehow in taking a potion that he could control evil, that this evil came out, and there was this, this battle and tension that was taking place. And he could control that inner turmoil that happens within the human heart. But there's an interesting and fascinating end to the story, one that many people don't know and don't understand. For what Lewis Stevenson was really acknowledging was a biblical truth, and it was this. It doesn't matter if you're like Dr. Jekyll uh, in our, Mr. Hyde in all of your atrocities and horrific acts of violence and terror. That doesn't make you evil. There is even an evil that persists within the heart of a righteous person. For you see in the ending and the conclusion of the story that Dr. Jekyll is sitting on a park bench, considering himself to be better than all of those who walked around, considering himself to be above the evil that was in the world. And as he sat in his pride and in his ego and self-centeredness, he looked down at himself, and without a drop of potion, he had become Mr. Hyde. That he had been transformed into the very evil that he thought only a potion would make. And the statement that he was making is this very statement that Paul was making, that residing within us are two opposite and powerful desiring centers, one that of the flesh and one that of the spirit. We are not schizophrenic. We are one person, but with two desiring centers. And Paul recognized that, and he talks about it. And so uh, the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that there truly is a battle within each individual. That there's a battle within each individual. And for most of you, you would go, Bill, I don't need you to teach me on that. I got it. I battle it every single day. But we're going to look and acknowledge that there is a battle. For there is teaching within the church today. A teaching of higher life, that if you come to Christ, that you won't sin anymore. A teaching of the victorious Christian life, that if you come and the more uh, perfected you are, that you won't wrestle with sin in the same way. Uh, that the flesh actually over the course of life is diminished within the life of the believer so that by the end of your life that you will have just a little bit of flesh over here and a whole lot of spirit. There's also a teaching that pervades many, even on college campuses, that speaks about the carnal Christian and says that there is uh, the Christian uh, who loves Jesus, but it's just this battle and he just gives up to the flesh and the flesh wins all the time. None of those are accurate. And so we want to come and see an accurate picture of the battle that goes on within us. And then look briefly at a weapon that too many people within the world, both believers and non-believers, go to. And that is an ineffective weapon. And that ineffective weapon would be that of the law and morality. And then we will look and see the effective weapon. What is the only true weapon that we can use within this battle? And that effective and true weapon is that of Christ and of the gospel only to apply it and to acknowledge it. 
So let's come now and look together at this battle and how it is that we fight. Let's pray. God, we ask now that you bless this time. Teach us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not to do good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Notice the word dwell. It's an incredibly important word. It's a word there that says evil and sin is not something that just acts outside of us and acts upon us, uh, nor is it something that comes into us temporarily and camps out. Uh, but if you, uh, if you know what you're doing, if you're spiritual enough, you can just sort of shoo it away and tell it to leave you alone. No, it speaks of sin as a tenant, as one who dwells, takes up residency. It is an unwanted tenant within the life of the believer, but one who is there. And that even the very best person at his or her a core, there is a deep down hideousness and self-centeredness that can lead to all kinds of evil. I don't remember who said it, but they, I believe it was Robert Murray McShane, but it may be wrong, who said, I looked into my heart tonight and I saw the seed of every evil that has been perpetrated within the world and I shuddered. He looked in his heart and he said, I may not have strapped a belt around my waist, placed a mask upon my face and grabbed a gun and killed someone, but I know that the seed of that is there in my hatred and disdain for someone else, for my radical self-centeredness that right is right by how I define right to be, and that I will do what is necessary in order to protect what is mine and my own. And he shuddered. You see, this sin, this flesh, is a tenant within us, And it is like a movement in the States today called the Moorish Movement. You may be familiar with it. It is a movement of people called Moorish who don't believe that the civil law applies to them and that they are above and outside of the law. And how they are acting is they would go in, and especially in this time of economic downturn when there are many homes that are empty, they would then take up residence within a home and and apply squatter's rights to those homes and live in these homes. There was an article just recently in the Charlotte Observer, my hometown, that in Piper Glen, a beautiful neighborhood on a TPC golf course, that a 6,000 square foot home is being occupied by a Moorish woman and eight other individuals. The city can't kick them out. The police arrest them and they post bail and show back up. The kids go to school down at the end of the driveway and picked up by the bus every single day going there. The the folks who live in the neighborhood don't want this tenant living in the house. They're there and they can't get them out. That's how the sin is, the flesh is to the believer. It's there and it's taken up residency. And you don't just shoo it away and you don't just say, oh, Uh, It's not there. You have to look, and in Galatians 5, when Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There is a battle going on. And for uh, many of you, I imagine, you understand the battle, yes? We're in it. And so... Being in the battle, folks, I want you to hear this. It's a good thing. 
If there's no battle going on within you, if your conscience isn't bothered at all by your failings or even by your self-righteous acts of success, then you should be bothered. Then you should be deeply concerned because if there is no battle, the question then becomes, are there two opposing centers at all within you? Or is the flesh just the only one that's there and conscience be damned? So there's a battle within each of us. And I think most people would acknowledge that that is true. So the question then becomes, what do we do? What do we do? How do we step in uh, to this battle? You know the old joke, you don't want to step into a gunfight with a knife. Well, it's the same way here. You don't want to step into this spiritual battle unarmed or underarmed. You want to step in in the right way with the right and most successful means of which to win this battle. And too often, most of us go to what would be a very ineffective weapon. And the ineffective weapon, the one that doesn't work within anyone's life, is the weapon of the law and morality. That if you become more legal, if you obey more, if you just do these things, then you will be able to win the battle. You see, the law has never justified us. Paul has talked about that and talked about that. You are never justified by the law. That is, by the works of Jesus Christ applied to you that you receive by faith. That's how one is justified. And if you are not justified by the law, he equally is saying that you are not sanctified by the law. You're not made more like Christ by the law. But isn't it interesting? Here's how so many Christians uh, live out their life. I know that it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that I come to be a believer, and I believe in him only in his work. And from that moment on, then you apply the law, and it's in your application of the law that how you become like Jesus. You work it out. C.S. Lewis, in his great work in the abolition of man, he writes in an appendix, uh, and he says in the appendix, he, he looks at all of the different world religions, And he finds within all of the world religions a commonality. And the commonality is this, that the way that all world religions, be it Buddhism, be it Hinduism, be it Islam, be it Judaism, be it even many uh, who are in misunderstood Christianity and religion, would apply this, that the way to deal with your self-centeredness, the way to deal with your brokenness, the way to deal with the evil that is in the world and the evil that is in your own heart is that you work harder and apply the law more rigorously and more vigorously within your life. You see, we all understand the moral law. We do know what it is, and across all the cultures and across all the religions, what most people do about the fact that we have a bad nature is take the moral law, and with an enormous exercise of willpower, we apply that moral law to our bad nature. If I just try harder, if I just do better, then it will change me an external force trying to then create in us a Christianity that Paul says it never works like that. You see, Paul said something actually absolutely amazing about the application of the moral law to the sinful broken heart. Listen to what he says in verse 5. It's not what we read, but it's risked up uh, the page a little. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul says, as one writer put it, Paul says that the law has a greenhouse effect 
on what's wrong with us. It doesn't shrivel it. It aggravates it and prospers it. It actually grows it within us. And so you're probably thinking, how could this be? Going back to St. Augustine, who we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in his wonderful work, The Confessions. He wrote in there as a young man, and he recounted a story as a young man that he was walking along one day, and he passed by a private orchard, and he broke into the orchard, and he stole pears uh, from the orchard. And later on, as he was sitting and contemplating his actions, he was incredibly profound, theological, and philosophical. And he was asking the question, why, why did I do that? Why did I break into the orchard and steal someone else's pears? Because here's what he knew about the situation. I wasn't hungry. It wasn't hunger that drove me to steal the pears. It wasn't my love for pears. I don't like pears. But I stole them anyway. I actually threw them away afterwards. So what is it that drove St. Augustine to go and to steal pears from the private orchard. His conclusion was this. Someone told me you can't have them. Isn't it fascinating that the application of the law which is good, Paul makes an argument, the law is not bad, but when applied to the evil heart, it actually causes within the heart a rebellion to do exactly what the law says not to do. And you may go, come on, Bill. Well, let me give you an example of something like this. Parents, you ever told your child not to do something? And then immediately the child does the very thing that you told them not to do? Could it be that the application of law to the heart can actually cause within it a desire to do the very thing it was told not to do? I I know uh, a young person, a young woman, who I happen to be married to, um, who tells a story of her childhood, of riding in that wonderful thing called a family vacation car trip across the country. And back in the 70s, without air conditioning, three sisters sitting across the back seat, mom and dad in the front seat, dad a lieutenant colonel uh, in the army, two tours of Vietnam, not a man who uh, liked people to disobey, and they're driving down the road. And surprisingly enough, the sisters started to get into it. And Tom, my father-in-law, said, not one more peep from any of you. And from right behind the driver's seat, this beautiful little girl named Lisa Clary went, peep. (laughs) Now, I doubt very seriously that she had ever had the thought to just say peep on her own. But the application of a rule and of a law put onto her went, peep. And not to throw my wife under the proverbial bus by herself, I had an older sister and my parents would constantly say, don't touch your sister. What do you mean, like this? Like this? Like this? Mom, he's touching me. I'm not touching. I'm just getting really close. I'm right there. I'm not really touching. I'm right in there in your space. Isn't it interesting that the fall, that the original sin that happened in the world really wasn't the eating of the fruit, but it was the disdain that Adam and Eve had for being told they couldn't. They had anything and everything they wanted. Everything within the garden. And God said to them, this one tree you don't get to eat. 
and, and evil Satan applying a good law to the human heart created within it a rebellion that caused all of humanity for all ages to fall and spiral down in that same collapse. And for many of you, you were working hard to apply the law to a battle within your hearts that cannot be won with that weapon. For what you will find is that you will either disregard the law altogether and throw it out, and you will be one who is being bad and breaking the rules, all the rules, all the time. Or on the other hand, you will take the law and you will take it so closely to your hearts that you will obey it at all costs. And of being good and obeying all the rules, you become a self-righteous Pharisee. You see, both of those positions are incredibly self-centered. And both of those self-centered positions, the one of antinomianism, no law, irreligion over the one side, and of religion or of law on the other, both are incredibly self-centered. And both create within themselves a Savior who is not Christ. For you see, the one who disregards all the law altogether says, I'm going to live my own life. Nobody tells me how to live my life. I'm going to break all the moral laws if I want to. This is being your own God, isn't it? That you set the standard and you determine what's wrong and what's right. And you're your own God and your own Savior. But on the other hand, there's some who would say, I'm going to be so good that God is going to have to bless me to take me to heaven, that you're being your own Savior. You're not letting God be your Savior, that even though there are all kinds of moral behavior in your life inside of you, you are filled with self-righteousness and cruelty and bigotry and anger. You're miserable because you're always comparing yourself to other people, and you're never sure that you're good enough. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So what does all of this mean? Tim Keller writes, it means that you can't deal with your hideousness. You can't deal with that self-centeredness. You can't deal with that self-absorption by trying to be a good person or by just bringing the moral law to bear so that you can say, now I'm going to be a really, really good person. That can just make you worse. You don't deal with your hideousness with an act of the will. You need a complete transformation of the very motives of your heart where you're dead. A complete transformation. And so we'll end here and say, well, if that's the ineffective weapon of being moral, of being self-righteous, of looking down at other people, it comes in all shapes and sizes within the church. Looking down the nose, speaking behind backs, talking and condemning other people, for whatever they've done and feeling incredibly good about yourself, you relate, I would imagine, very well to Dr. Jekyll sitting on the park bench that afternoon when you look in the mirror and you find out that you're hideous and that you're a Mr. Hyde in your self-righteousness. So what do you do? Well, the proper weapon is this. The proper weapon to win this battle is as it always is. Find Christ. Apply Christ. Plead Christ. Take him, O wretched man that I am, Paul cries. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself may serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I I serve the law of sin. There's this dichotomy. But then this beautiful thing happens in this letter. He keeps writing. And it doesn't end right there, and you don't have to pause until next week. You read on into chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in the midst of the battle, in the very middle of the pitched battle, you turn to Christ with all that you have. And when you can't, you cry out in your inability to the one who can it's interesting that Paul very, doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit in this passage, but it is one that is so necessary for the believer. For the Holy Spirit dwells in you. For greater, in you is, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so when you're in the battle and you're going, I don't want to do this thing, but every passion within me is wanting me to do this thing, cry out to something in someone greater than yourself. God, help me to do this. Turn to the one who is the perfection of the law on your behalf. When you're in the middle of the battle and you're wounded and you're tired and you can't get up, quit trying to pick up the sling and all of the stones and be your own David. Look to the true David. Look to Christ who went out onto the field of battle on your behalf and he slayed the giants that you could never slay. That he fought the battle for you and he won the day And he doesn't come out and say, hey, now win with me. He says, I won for you. Now come out with me. Come ride with me. Come under my banners, which are unfurled on the field of battle, and see who I am. And see that I am the victor. But turn to me. So many of us turn to white knuckles and turn inward. But the answer and the key Paul is saying is, oh, acknowledge you're messing up. Anybody mess up again this week? Amen. And just acknowledge it. What's so hard with that? Say, I blew it again. I blew it again. Any of you always ever repented of the same thing more than once? I have. You come back and you go, Lord, though I know in my bones that I'm probably going to do this again. I don't want to. I really don't want to. But my flesh is weak. My mind is weak. But you're not weak. And would you fight for me today? Christ, would you mind showing up right here, right now? Because I don't know how to make my marriage work. I don't know how to love my rebellious child. I don't know how to love my parent. I don't know how to do this, God. I don't know how to make it through today, but you do. And so I'm coming to you with an awful lot of war wounds. And they feel incredibly mortal. And I'm looking up, and I need you to show up. Would you show up? And you know what he says to you? I'm already there. I'm fighting on your behalf. And you know what this church is supposed to be like? When you see people who are fighting the battle and they've gotten knocked down and they got a couple of war wounds in their body and they're laying down and they're exhausted and they're about to give up, don't just look at them and feel better about yourself. Don't walk by on the other side of the road, but get down with them and help point them to Christ. Weep with them. Agonize with them. Fight for 
and with them. That's the body of Christ. That's who we're supposed to be. Isn't it? Oh, wouldn't this church turn Hilton Head and Bluffton upside down if we were known as a church that stepped into the pitch with people who were fighting for their own hearts and souls and we pointed them to a Savior instead of standing with pious arms folded going, I guess they're getting what they deserve. Well, that wouldn't have happened if they'd just stopped sinning. Duh. No kidding. But they did. And they're sinful. And so are we. And we run to the same Savior. And we point them to that same Savior. For that's what we believe together. And so we're going to close with this great song, our creed. So I'm going to invite the team to come up. And we're going to sing it. For the proper weapon that we use in this battle, turn to Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law. Turn to Christ, who is your perfect righteousness. Turn to Christ and plead Him only. Turn to Christ and allow Him to fight the battle for you. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete.